you're listening to The Currency. Welcome. I'm your host, Mike Gaston. I'm a brand and marketing strategist, and this podcast is all about the power of private industry in America. Today, I am with Josh Bunting of Bunting Architectural Metals. Josh, thanks for joining me today on The Currency. Thanks for having me, Mike. So, Josh, we're sitting here on the banks of the Allegheny River in the mighty and honest town of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And uh, we've just taken a bit of a tour through your facility. We're going to get into the details uh, of that in just a minute. But do me a favor and tell the audience a little bit. What is Bunting Architectural Metals? What do you do and who do you do it for? That's a big question, Mike. (laughs) We got all day. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we are a uh, fabricator and coder of exterior building products, and that can be metal panel systems, exterior screening systems, curtain wall systems that have component cladding that can be glass, stone, aluminum, zinc, brass, bronze. And we do it for uh, architects, uh, engineers, uh, real estate developers, um, and general contractors. And really, we tend to work in a segment for the commercial industry focusing on super infrastructure projects such as airports, uh, transit systems, light rail systems. And we also do uh, what is vertical construction, towers, high rises. Okay. And help just to help people visualize, because I, I hear curtain wall and cladding and certain things come to mind. But, you know, a person walking down the street, what, what does it look like? What is this? What are these systems to the average uh, casual observer? Well, one of the projects we just finished up was uh, part of the $4.5 billion redevelopment at LaGuardia Airport. So I think anytime you drive on the campus of LaGuardia now or catch a bus or fly in on a plane, you're going to see our work. If you look on the exterior of the building, uh, they have the the metal panels that clad the building and the glass. And essentially what it does is it's anything that protects the outside or the inside from the outside. Okay. And to the extent what we do is a little bit more specialized in that we do it on high-end projects, highly visible things where, you know, it's, it's going to matter what it looks like. So when you took me through the facility and you've got uh, – this facility here is like over 100,000 square feet. You said the building. How old is this building that, that we went through? I think the building was built in 1956. Okay. Uh, and the area we're in now, we're, we're on the Allegheny River. Uh, it's a 13-acre campus. Along the Allegheny River, it's beautiful. It's six miles, uh, I think we're east of Pittsburgh, six miles east of Pittsburgh. A little northeast, yeah. yeah. And uh, on the Allegheny River. But in Pittsburgh's gone through a renaissance. I don't know if you get a chance when you come around, you'll see it's a big technology yeah. city, a lot yeah. of robotics, a lot of healthcare. But when this facility was built, it was really a rail terminal okay. for the ri- rivers. And so this site is built on a lot of slag, which is really, really stable ground. Okay. And... Uh, you know, it was designed really for the application which we're using it today. Sure. And where I was where I was going with that is just to say when you took me through the facility, I was just trying to remember how old the you know the the uh, the kind of production areas huge. And I, and I was looking at a lot of these panels. They had perforations, either like circles or uh, oval shapes. Different. So so what you're creating, like we talk about these curtain walls or the cladding, these are often designed. It's just not. It's not just that you're putting metal up on a wall, but it's often uh, stylized in one way. It's coated, it's painted, it's got different perforations. So this is very kind of like higher-end design applied to the outside of a building. Yes, uh, that's very astute, Mike. Uh, (laughs) I feel like I'm struggling to describe it. I apologize. No, no, it was probably my job for not doing a good enough job of describing it myself. (laughs) But uh, no, that's exactly right. So what we do as, a, as an organization, most of our project delivery methods are through what's called a design assist contracting method. So an architect will be retained okay. and then will be brought in either by the developer or the owner or by the general contractor. And we help finish out the design to meet a schedule and a budget and a desired outcome. But what we do is often so unique that it's not something you can just go and specify, you really have to work through an iterative design process. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that's very much the case in that you'll, you'll see this, this very, you know, for lack of a better term, high-end application to yeah. the products. Yeah, okay. And you're doing these projects all over the country, but I noticed, like, looking at your project portfolio, you know, at least online, a lot of it's the East Coast, but you're doing these projects all over. So you're based in Pittsburgh, but you're not necessarily regional in the sense that you're limited 
to Pennsylvania and Ohio. You're you're all over the country with this. No, we are. Matter of fact, uh, we we really started getting our national presence through stadiums. We've done 24 stadiums, and uh, you know the, the stadium construction industry. You know these are billion dollar investments. Yeah, and a lot of it's privately funded. Not all of it, but a good portion okay. of it. They do public-private partnerships. And the owners of these teams are really trying to make a statement with their stadiums about their brand, right? And so you look at architecture and you look at what the really, really dynamic architecture firms are doing is they're making the building the brand. Mm-hmm. And so it's about an expression of who you're going to be, what you're going to be. And so, for instance, uh, the Minnesota Vikings, we, they have an iconic Viking ship on the outside of the stadium. And the design team and the, and the owners of the Vikings, who i got to say are some of the best people I've ever worked with. They, oh, nice. They're so good for morale, you know. But, this is uh, coming from a Steelers uh, – I don't know if you're a Steelers fan. Yeah, I, I would. This is definitely Steelers country. Well, you know, I'm not going to admit to being a Vikings fan, but surely I was persuaded. Okay. <laughs> you were impressed. <laughs> yeah, the Rooney's still have us. Okay. But, uh, but no, it was really wonderful. You know, they brought hats for all our employees and they brought in coolers and, you know, during the construction phase when we were actually oh, wow. manufacturing the ship. And, and it's really it's really a cool uh, feature piece of the stadium. When you go to the stadium, they have this giant Viking ship. And so the design team came to us and said, hey, look, here's the concept, here's the budget, and here's some schematics. Mm-hmm. And we took those. We have in-house professional engineers, and they took that and engineered it all through construction, and we built it and installed it. So you're doing you're doing uh, design engineering, you're doing fabricating, you're doing coatings, and you're doing installations. You're doing kind of turnkey. Yes, we do. We do it all the way through. Um, we will install if we have to. We don't install okay. if people want us to, but we do both of it. Um, but yeah, turnkey end to end. So here's here's a wide open question. It's gonna be impossible to answer, but what, like what's what is the project? go for like like doing like i'm not asking specifically for the uh, vikings but what does a project like that run i mean it's got to be a huge project well i I would say this if you're spending a billion dollars a couple million probably doesn't you're like hardware yeah right you're like door hardware. you're in the note you're a rounding (laughs) area yeah right yeah exactly (laughs) so uh i I don't think it's expensive relative to the value you get overall but this uh, just to get a size a sense of the scope of the project that that's helpful um it's it's almost always seven figures or more. And how, in timeline, like what does it take to put something like that through? A well, we we did two. Process? We did the Super Bowl a couple of years ago for MetLife Stadium. Okay. And uh, Pepsi came in, and they came in. And actually, if you go to our website, you know Bunting Architectural Metals, there's a video for the for the Pepsi uh, Super Bowl entries, and these things are twelve thousand pound Pepsi bottles. And Pe- Pepsi came in and made a video of us manufacturing. But they literally gave us a napkin sketch, and we delivered them in eight weeks. And there was, I think, four of them or two of them. Wow. And, uh, I mean, they're 12,000 pounds a piece. So it depends on how you determine you want to deliver a project, right? Yeah. But most of the time, it's, uh, you know, 18 months. Okay. You know, 12 to 18 months. Sure. So they run more than than, about a year or so, year and a half. Yeah. Josh, you are fifth-generation owner of the business. Is that correct? Uh, I'm the fifth generation president, but I'm part part owner. It's a family business. Sure. So So a bunting family. So you're fifth generation. How long has the business been in existence and and how did it start? It obviously didn't start doing metal cladding for skyscrapers five Mm -hmm. generations. Maybe it did, but... uh, It didn't. Yeah. What was the genesis of the company? So we were founded in 1869 and it was my uh, same family all the way through, never been sold. And that just means we never made enough money to sell it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it was it was uh, founded by my great 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 grandfather. Okay. And it was a engraving business and did rubber stamps, rubber stamps okay. and engraving. And I think uh, you know, candidly, you know, if you look at a, a family business, every generation wants to make their mark on a business, right? They want to add value and be, you know, live up to their parents' expectations, you know, and hope to, to maybe make them proud in one way or another, you know? And we do that by not bankrupting it. Okay. That's, that's your, your obligation to the previous yeah, right, generations. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We're, so, but, <laughs> no uh, pressure. Yeah. Right. But so uh, we started as a rubber stamp and engraving business. And if you could imagine, if we wouldn't have changed, we'd be obsolete today because oh, we don't make rubber stamps today. Yeah. Um, yeah. We don't use them for anything really. I mean, but, uh, so today, that that business, uh, which is, we call Bunting Industrial, does 
uh, pipe valves and tags and fittings for identifying pipes and what flows through a pipe. Okay. And because it was doing identification, my dad in 1980 uh, started a sign company that made interior men's and women's room signs. Okay. And uh, so I think that was his generational stamp, if you will. Sure. Not to use a pun on word, but pun okay. intended. Uh, <laughs> it's a family joke. Yeah, state, right. Yeah. yeah, right. Not to put your stamp on it. But uh, <laughs> so, but he transitioned into the sign business and then he started with using our existing infrastructure to make men's room, women's room signs, interior signs for hospitals. Hospitals, believe it or not, buy a lot of interior oh, yeah. signs and a they change them out a lot. Yeah. Tons of wayfinding, right? Yeah. And uh, so then he bought an exterior sign company hmm. and he combined the two. And he was able to offer interior signs and exterior signs. And that was a package, right? And so uh, that just was really a naturally led him to new construction, being more of a of a specialty contractor for signage. Okay. Because when you need a new building, you have exterior sign needs and you have interior sign needs. Mm-hmm. Renovations typically have just one or the other. Right. But it's really dynamic to be able to provide both. And so that was our business platform for a really long time. Uh, in 2001, we bought the Charlotte, North Carolina regional offices of a company called Sterling Dula. Okay. And Sterling Dula made architectural metals and really specifically uh, railing systems. Mm. And the owner of that company was a man named Fred Dula, and he had taught me about the finishing side of the business. Uh, he owned another company called Windsor Metal Finishing in, in South Florida, where they specialized in Kynar uh, coatings. And in South Florida, you have a high salt content in the okay. air, you know, a lot of corrosion. So there's these paint coatings called Kynar resin coatings, and they have a 70% PVDF resin mixture. What does that mean? So PVDF stands for polyvinyl something something. Okay, I'm fair not enough. A chemist. Fair enough. Yeah, but uh, you know it's a very big word. And yeah. I'm from Pittsburgh, so yeah. we're going to stick to the small <laughs> words. But uh, <laughs> but uh, anyway, so, so that's really we had coatings operations for signs, and they used a different type of paint system. Okay, and uh, I was very fortunate. You know, I you know. Being in a family business, I think one of the advantages you get is generational experience. And my dad had built a good reputation and built friendships and had, by his work, not mine, maybe a little akin to Joe Biden's son, but uh, I was I got on the board of the International <laughs> Sign Association. Were you making 50K a month? or <laughs> It was free. It was pro bono. <laughs> All right. Then I don't think anybody can accuse you of any wrongdoing there. That's but, great. Uh, yeah. But so anyway, so they, they asked me uh, to – they wanted to look at the advent of how uh, LCD televisions okay. were going to impact signs in the future. And this was before the smartphone, really. I mean, very, very close to when the smartphone started. But, you know, these things aren't more than 10 or 12 years old, right? Sure. So they sent me to all these audiovisual conferences for the AV industry to kind of explore where they were going and how that was going to come into the sign industry. And I got really lucky, I got to say, because I came back from that and I went and talked to our association and kind of with some other people. And we said, here's what we think it's going to be. And then I came back inside our business and said, holy cow, we better make some changes because we're going to get crushed otherwise. And because uh, you don't think about it, but you said it earlier, signs do two things. They have wayfinding and they have branding, right? Corporate mm-hmm. identity. Mm-hmm. And if you look at your smartphone today, if you want to know how to go somewhere, you get on uh, Google Maps or yeah. Waze or some app. And if you want corporate identity, you know, you can download an app for Starbucks or McDonald's. Yeah. And if you go into McDonald's, the menu boards are all LCD televisions. You yeah. go to the airports, all LCD televisions. That's right. The New York subway system has some what I would call static signs left. But most of it, they just go on the app. You can tell where the yellow line is going to be and when. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so these are all threats to the sign industry. It was going towards rubber stamps. And so once again... We had to, you know, this generation has to figure out relevance and how do we position ourselves. So being on that board gave you some force, some insight into the future where the, where things were going. Yes. And you were able to see that things are going to go digital. And when, when would this have been approximately? I think it was probably somewhere around 2009, 2008, okay. Okay. 2007. Sure. I did it for five years. So somewhere probably between 2006, 2009. Okay. I'm not, I could be off a little no, bit. No, it's okay. And how long have you been at the helm of the business? 
Since August of 2015. Okay. All right. So you're working with your father. You're saying, hey, I'm seeing some changes happening. We've got to think about where we're going with this business. We're going to be right back with the rubber stamp situation. What was that discussion like with you and your dad? Was he receptive to that? Was it a difficult thing? Because I know for most of us, we kind of get invested. And I don't know, you know, I haven't met your father, but I know for myself, I might invest myself into something. It's hard to shift gears when I put my heart and soul and 20 years of my life into it to say, hey, I got to maybe consider a change. How'd that go? Um, well, I think it was really easy, actually. Mm. You know, I mean, I think my dad, my dad actually is a really brilliant guy in some respects. And I think what, what he was trying to help me grow into is be my own leader, mm. not be him. Okay. Right? And so you got to have some autonomy with that. Huh. And, you know. I think I think putting one way enough enough rope to hang yourself, right? Yeah. And so I think you know he's pretty good with that. And, and so you know you don't just wholesale jump into things. You're testing the water, see whether or not you can what your existing infrastructure will give you. How it can be competitive the market? How can you scale it? You know how do you how do you build the business revenue model? And then how do you test that? And mm-hmm. so you know I think he was letting me do that. And when we, as we had more and more success, he gave me more and more rope and, you know, just let it go until, until we had some success. And, and I think that's the way it went. So it seemed like, you know, the, the obvious is like, well, I, I've been at these events. I've been going to these uh, technology shows and, and, you know, LCD and digital is the future. So we have to go LCD digital. But you didn't do that necessarily. You came back and, and now you're doing all this architectural metal, which is different than wayfinding, different than signage. I can see it's a kissing cousin. A lot of the technology is similar. I think you're, you're providing uh, materials that support that industry, like pylons and that type of thing. But um, how did you make, like, what drove you into the architectural metal side versus, hey, we want to go LCD digital so that we're ahead of the curve? That's actually a really good question. And it's a really easy answer. Okay. Uh, Phillips. Phillips was about to go bankrupt. Okay. Because they were using a lost leader model to take market share for LCD televisions. Mm. And you have multi-billion dollar companies willing to take a lost leader model over a decade-long period to establish dominance in the market. A small owner-operator business has no business trying to compete with yeah, that. Yeah, where are you going? Right, right. You know, and okay. so it was an obvious decision not to take that model. If we look at who makes LCD televisions, they're all multinational corporations. The sign industry is an amalgamation of owner-operators. Mm-hmm. I think the largest sign company in the United States probably does $120 million in gross revenue. This isn't, I mean, it's, it's a good company, but it's not massive. Yeah, yeah. it's not, yeah, it's not yeah. Sony. Yeah. Right? It's yeah. not Philips. Yeah. Right, I mean, if you look at Philips Osram, they make you know, they made light bulbs for crying out loud. Well, now th- that division's bankrupt, and they're making LEDs. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, so you just you just gotta understand who you're gonna have to compete against, and understand how you're gonna scale with them, and with whether or not you have an advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a really easy thing to look at and say, okay, we can't go in this direction. Then the second factor is, well, what is our infrastructure? You know. We have, a, we have barriers to entry in our business like anybody else. They might not be as, as great as, uh, you know, I don't know, Boeing's where we're building right. a jet, right. but we have barriers to entry. So what equipment do we have that allows us to enter a market with, with you know, some barriers to entry that we can scale on? Yep. And uh, there were a couple things happening at the time where we felt that if we went into exterior building products, specifically plate metal panel systems, we could win. And one is uh, mold. You know, there had been a, in America, we were building buildings and sealing perimeters. And when you do that, it inhibits mold. It creates an environment for mold. And at the time, and it's probably still true today, the new asbestos was mold. There's all these molds in building and people were breathing mold. Well, the solution to that was plate metal panel systems, you know, that allowed to breathe. Okay. The other side of it was if we go to a plate metal panel system uh, versus a composite, composites have plastic cores. So, you know, you've seen a lot of fires in the UAE, and mm-hmm. there's a big one called Grinnell in London. That's right, yeah. So that had what's called a composite metal panel. And that was actually produced by Alcoa through a division they have with a product called Rainabon. Okay. And afterwards, they rolled that out and spun it out into its own business called Iconic. 
Okay. Because it's going to be a huge lawsuit. They don't oh, want to be in that business gotcha. anymore, so they roll it out into Arconic, and they're going to try to sell that off with their building products division. And when we talk about composite, you know, you showed me an example uh, down in your shop earlier. So what we're talking about is some type of sheet metal cladding that's got uh, almost like an insulated backer on it, but it's a composite material. It's like a plastic material that provides a level of insulation, maybe an inch thick or so. So that's the flammable piece, right? Like it's got a thin metal veneer and then this composite core. Right. There's two types of of, uh, composite metal panels. There's a thin one called an uh, aluminum composite panel or an ACM material, Mm -hmm. an aluminum composite, and it has like a polyethylene. And then there's a thicker one that has what we would call an R value that provides insulation. Insulation. Okay. And that's your insulated metal panels. And that's the one I showed you. But the the one that caught fire in Grinnell was a, a thin panel. Okay. And... But it still has a plastic core. Yeah. And so the National Fire Protection Association, the NFPA, came out with a guideline 285 that says anytime you build a building over 40 feet high, you can't have any combustible materials in the wall assembly or you have to test the entire wall assembly. Mm -hmm. So by going to a plate panel, you get away from combustible walls, Mm -hmm. right? And and then you're also getting away from mold. So Mm -hmm. there's a real opportunity. And these companies like Alcoa are massive. Mm -hmm. They have giant barriers to entry in their production and their manufacturing. But guess what? They're not tooled for a world where we're going to worry about fire safety and non-combustible products and get rid of mold. And so you have these companies that have to scramble. And it really gives an opportunity for us to make a wedge. for you, yeah. yeah. Right? And so we did that. And uh, Let's talk for a second about some of the things you've done down the shop. I mean, you took me through. I was just – I was blown away. So you've got um, – you know, this prep area where you're prepping the metal and there are these uh, four baths, you know, a- the kind of caustic acids and water. But there's something unique about this. I just share a little bit about because you told me you're the only one in the northern hemisphere set up this way. I'm just curious uh, for you to share. I mean, I'd like you to share that if you don't mind. No, certainly. So uh, so when we got into doing exterior building products, one of the difference between the, the sign industry and the building products industry is we both we, we both had large coating operations. Okay. Um, you so know, coating, we're taking large pieces of metal and we're applying some type of paint or pigment. Paint, yep, right. Gotcha. But the performance characteristics are very different. Mm-hmm. So what we did was we took equipment that was 30 or 40 years old and replaced it with new equipment that was a lot more efficient. But we also installed a pretreatment system for the aluminum, which is okay. primarily what we do for our building mm-hmm. materials, that... It's a five-stage pretreatment. It has a an acid, and then it's rinsed with water, and then it has a chromium phosphate conversion coating, mm-hmm. and then water, water. And that meets a standard called AMA 2605, which is uh, superior performance coatings for building products. So this preps the metal to take on a high-end paint provided by, say, like you told me, PPG is one of your main suppliers. Right. Yeah. Yes. And so PPG makes a, a paint that has this 70% PVDF resin okay. that I talked about earlier, right? right? right. So <laughs> what I actually did was I, I took what I learned from Fred Dula and- Sure, down uh, you in know, his Florida operation. Right, and, and put it into a, his operation was built probably 35 years ago and put it into one that was built, you know, five years ago. Okay. And, uh, but we-, we Constructs it such that most of these operations are to coat an aluminum extrusion. So they can do something that's, you know, let's just say uh, six inches by six inches and 24 foot long. And we made it so we can coat 40 foot long that are nine foot high and six foot wide. Yeah, these baths are huge. Yeah, it's massive. You could fit two Ford F-150s on it, right? It's crazy. I looked at it and it just struck me like a scene out of a sci-fi movie. This, You know, this... It was just amazing. You got the the lights are on, the some steams coming up, and and they're huge. It's just, oh yeah, yeah. It, it, it's really it's really dynamic when you think about it, though. Because when we build buildings, you know, a typical story on a building is ten feet high, right? Yep. So if we're going forty feet, that's four stories. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we we're taking a four story building, you know, that's nine foot wide if we can get it to engineer, and we can go and put that on a truck mm-hmm. and send that out and and put it on a truck and put it on the side of the building. So when we get into markets like New York City. Where labor costs are exorbitant, yep, right? Yep. And that market really wants what's called unitized wall assemblies. We can take a unitized wall assembly out there in a four-story building, and we can set, I don't know, let's say four a day, five a day, right? 
That's still, you know, half of a four-story building in a day. That's impressive. Versus yeah. what everybody else is doing in three months. Right, right. And uh, so it really just it, it's, makes everything so much faster because we can be manufacturing that while they build the structure. Mm-hmm. And it reduces the cost. Yep. And you get a better quality because anytime you take some of that, that skilled labor out of the field and you put it in a factory-controlled environment, you get a better quality product. Yeah, this is great. And the reason I'm asking these questions because, you know, we talk about the, you know, 1800s started as a, as a rubber stamp company. You know, your, your dad took the company in the direction of the sign uh, industry, acquired another business. You learned from some of that. Now you've got this architectural metal that you're doing, really impressive. And you talked about uh, barriers to entry. And I think, you know, the genius of it is, you know, it's not just that you're, uh, you find a little niche and you're hoping no one notices you. You've created a facility that is unmatched. It's unparalleled. I mean, you drive by, you wouldn't know. It's not like you're, you know, throwing a flag out and saying, hey, look at me. But when you're, when I look at your capabilities, um, you really have set the bar pretty high for competitors and in, in you're fulfilling a need. And on top of that, the system that you have allows you to do it as inexpensively as possible. So you're kind of hitting, it's like you're firing on all cylinders with the direction that you've chosen. You've been doing this for how many years now? Since 2000 and... 15? 15. Yeah. 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 So, well, thanks. That's really, that's really kind of you to say. Well, it's impressive. How, how do you guys sell? I mean, you, so you, you've got the story to tell. You've got a facility. We don't have any salespeople. So how do you do it? Like, obviously, just people just know, hey, you got to call I Bunting. I think once you, you find out about what we do and how we do it, we're just a natural selection. So how, how do people know about you? They're high-profile well, we, projects, been right? we 150 years, so we transitioned to our customers. Right. And, you know, some of our customers are... You know, Skanska, who's probably yep. the largest general contractor on the planet. Yep. You know, we got Clark Construction, and we have— uh, and People say know. things like, well, who did LaGuardia? Well, the metal was done by Bunting. Who did, right. you know, fill in all the Javits Center, I think, you know, that kind of stuff. Like, who did the Viking Stadium? Well, we did—so I'll tell you, like, okay, so the, there's a commonality in the owner there, oddly enough. So we're doing the new Newark terminal, too. Okay. Right? Well, the Port Authority in New York, New Jersey is the owner, right? And uh, we did the World Trade Center. Okay. We did LaGuardia. We're doing new work. And so I think when they get into some of these things, if they, what happens, candidly, is they say, well, if you, if you guys talk to these guys because they've worked on some really high-end projects with us and they have a pretty good product and, you know, they tend to have a really good price and they're on time, you should talk to them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, those are competitive bidding environments, you know, but at the same time, you know, we're not afraid of that. We, we try to, I think that's part of satisfying a customer, satisfying a budget, right? Oh, yeah. And, and so, I mean, we got to do all of it. And you try to build a business model that can do those things. And I think that's where you really look at, you know, how do we build competitive advantages? Where do we do it? And uh, I, I, I don't think if you do things well and you provide those things, you don't need everybody in the world to be your customer. And, you, you know, you, people will, generally work with you again. My guest today is Joshua Bunting. He is the president of Bunting Architectural Metals. Do me a favor and check out the company. You can see some of the projects on uh, the website. Just go to buntingarchitecturalmetals.com. I'll put a link to it in the show notes, but um, that's B-U-N-T-I-N-G architecturalmetals.com. We'll be right back uh, with more with our friend Josh Bunting. Guys, I hope you're enjoying today's show. I've got to tell you, I really love putting this podcast together. There's something really special about meeting these business owners, hearing their stories, and then getting those stories out to you, the community that makes up the currency. Thank you so much for being a listener. Thank you for helping me make this podcast so successful. Now, look, if you are a business owner and you're trying to scale your business, you're trying to grow, maybe introduce new products, maybe capture new markets, or just capture more share in your existing market, I'd love for you to get in touch. I'd love to help you. You know, I'm a brand and marketing strategist. I help the owners of private businesses transform their marketing from an overhead function, something that costs them money, to a revenue-generating machine, something that brings money into the business. Every dollar you spend should generate exponential return. And so I love working with folks 
that own businesses to help them do that transformation. If that's something you think you could use some help with, let's at least have a discussion. Get in touch. Like I said, my email address is mike at mikegaston.com. You can also go to my website, mikegaston.com. There's a contact form there, but get in touch and let's get a discussion started. Now, guys, let's get back to today's show. And we're back. Uh, I'm Mike Gaston. I'm your host of The Currency. Thanks for listening today. I'm with the president of Bunting Architectural Metals. His name is Josh Bunting. Josh, welcome back to The Currency. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, so we're having an interesting conversation. I love digging into business. And I, I, you know, I don't know about the listeners. I love understanding how did this happen? How did you get from point A to B? Talk a little bit about the process. I, th- I see it's what's interesting to me is you, know, you go through the facility, and it's highly industrial. We're in a very industrial area. The, the facility is very industrial. You know, this is metal stamping and, and uh, spray booths and curing baths and all that kind of thing. But at the same time, I think folks make the mistake and go, well, high industrial isn't very creative. And I see a lot of creativity in this business, a lot of innovation. And so it was, it's uh, fun to kind of dig in a little bit below the surface. So thanks for spending time talking about that. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about maybe the, the less uh, material stuff. You know, we can talk about metal and materials and that, but I want to talk about things like values. You know, this is a, f- a company that was started in the 1800s, been known by your family all the way down the line. I'm just curious, like, what are some of the core values that, that the company holds that you think have made it what it is today? How does a company last this long? I can't imagine it lasts this long without some kind of deeper attitude, philosophy, position, opinion. What do you think drives the business that way? Well, they say that uh, businesses take on the dysfunction of their owners, so I, I think we're highly dysfunctional. <laughs> well, and no, families families are always – each family has its own level of dysfunction, right? <laughs> I don't mind it. Yeah, trust me. I, we, yeah. We, everybody has it. And but, I'm the uh, chief source of it usually, but right. anyway, yeah. Um, no, I, I think that's a good question. I think uh, we're not perfect, right? No one is. Yeah, so is? I, th- I think one of our big values is we know we're not perfect, and we're okay with mistakes, you know, as long as it's not meant with malice, and you just try to learn from them. Mm-hmm. And uh, but you got to work hard, and you got to get up and and have purpose. And I think I don't look at value maybe in the traditional sense of you know faith or something like that. I mm-hmm. mean, certainly that's a part of life, and that's part of people's personal lives. But sure. when you come to work, I think the value system is. You know, the golden rule, treat people the way you want to be treated. And whether you're, you know, in a superior position to them or in an inferior position to them, I think if people treat each other with mutual respect, you're going to work as a team to get it done. And I think if you can create a culture, you know, if I look at value, I think of it more along the lines of culture than value maybe. Sure. And I think you want to have a culture that's that's dedicated to continuous improvement. Mm-hmm. Because when you have a culture of continuous improvement, what you're really saying is you have a culture of change. Okay. And you make change a part of everyday life so that when you go from doing rubber stamps to signs or from signs to architectural metals or from architectural metals to curtain more, you, you have a culture that says, hey, we need to be the change. We need to drive the change. And I, I think that's a really big value that we have is that we don't say that we don't really define who we are, you know, and saying we make this and that's what we have to be. Okay. So, so you, what do you mean by that is? We're not all about, like, you are all about the architectural metal. You guys are great at what you do, but you're not getting your identity from that necessarily, it sounds like. The cultural identity comes from a willingness to be innovative, to change, to tackle new challenges, to overcome. I'm reading into that, but is that essentially what you're telling me? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what continuous improvement is, right? I mean, if you're dedicated to quality, you're dedicated to continuous improvement. Mm -hmm. And that essentially means changing what you do. Right, but not finding your identity in the product you deliver. That, okay, yeah, that's a that's a good confirmation. How many employees do you have here? About 120. 120. In in average life cycle of employee, I, mean, I, I would imagine because you've got both executives, designers, engineers, and you've mm-hmm. got people in the processing side, shipping, receiving. We have a we have people that are third generation here, yeah. and we have people that have been here for a couple of years, and we turned over a lot of people when we went from a sign industry to an architectural metals industry because sure. not everybody went along with that right. Sure, I mean that change. You know, I say that's a cultural change, but the other thing you learn in life is that you know 
you have to work with people that are all going to want to, you know, row in the same direction. Yeah. And if people don't want to go in that direction, they have to be given the opportunity to go do what they want to do. And uh, we didn't terminate people. You know, people left on their own accord because they didn't they didn't want to be a part of that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, those are some of the challenges of that. The other side is you get turnover on that. But, I mean, I'd say we had, we had uh, in 2014, we had over 200 people. Wow. And one of the, the big differences is it, it's a less labor-intensive business, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Our revenue's up, mm-hmm. our margin's up, but you don't need the same uh, manpower to go do that work. So you have to deal with that. I think that's a, that's a real challenge in life because you are, you know, in a small business, you know everybody personally. You can, I can see yeah. them friends, you know. And sure, you like three generations. There's a community element to it. This isn't like um, you, you're not a you're not a venture guy that just came and grabbed up this company. You're going to get it nice and tight and flip it in two years. I mean, what you do with the business in two years is your business. But your fifth generation, it's an inheritance. I don't mean necessarily you've inherited, but there's you've inherited a responsibility, a history. So, well, I did inherit it. You know, I didn't. I mean, that was that's kind of the way it works in our family. I don't yeah. know any other family works, but you know, I my dad doesn't make me pay him for anything. You know, he's what his dad did and so, yeah uh, but I, when i said the word inheritance i was just clarifying meaning that you that you've that you've taken on something that has a lot of meaning and context for you and your family it wasn't like you came in off the street you're gonna just flip this thing you don't really care you know i'm in and i'm out i'm just here to make a buck right now it's very personal yeah yeah but it should be for everybody right i, I doubt there's many leaders in the organization who are spending less than 12 to 14 hours a day there yeah. Right. I yeah. mean, this is your family. They, you spend a lot more time with them than you do your kids. Yeah, it's something. I, I I've said this before on the podcast with other guests, I think. But um, anyone that says, "Oh, it's just business; it's not personal," has never owned a business because it becomes very personal. It's not that you make every aspect personal. Oh, you looked at me funny. Now I'm offended. But you know, or somebody kind of screws you over on a deal, and you get but. But this is your life. It's your heart and soul, your family's well-being. You know, you're making sure that other families can take care of themselves is very personal. I mean, the idea that we're separating business from personal, there's certain things you don't bring to the office just because not everybody has to deal with that. That's not my problem. You know, we're coworkers. But on the other hand, we're in the ship together. And if you win, I win. We're, we're helping each other. So I think it's very personal, or it can be. It should be. Yeah. yeah. Right? I mean, if you talk about culture and values... What kind of value do you have if you don't care at all about the person you're with 10 right. to 12 hours right. a day? Right. It doesn't matter which one it is either, by the way. Yeah. You know, especially if you're an employer. If you're going to if you're going to be in a position to employ people or even at a management level, right? If you're just a manager and you have five to seven people reporting to you, if you don't care about their well-being or livelihood, number one, you shouldn't be managing them. Number two, you're not going to get any performance. Right. You know, but I mean, you shouldn't. You shouldn't care about that just to get the performance. You should do it because you're a decent human being. That's right. That's you know? right. No, it's well said. It's well said. And you, so you've got a, you've got you said a hundred and how many? Hundred and seven. Hundred and twenty. Hundred and twenty employees. So, so let's circle back. You were talking about this culture of change and continuous improvement, and um, I like that idea. I think that can be easy when you're, and I don't mean to say you, but you know, when you're more of an, an executive role, you have a perspective. You know, you're seeing what's out in the horizon. It's, it's exciting. Most entrepreneurs, you know, they kind of see, I know for me, I see something shiny. I want to run after it. But, you know, I think the further you get down the line in a business, the harder that change can be because, you know, you and I might have context and in, in visibility to what's going on in the greater world. But if I'm down in the line, I don't really understand why do we have to change? This is kind of upsetting my apple cart. What does it mean for me? How have you kept that culture or inculcated that culture throughout the business? Well, you know, it's, it's, that's a really good question. I hope I can give you a short enough answer. Um, so if I, from my own experience, I'll tell you, uh, I had a, a manager here who isn't here any longer. He, he moved on, but uh, he was really good at forcing me to once a month, get everybody in the entire facility together and give them a report card of what I was doing and tell them why I was doing it and sharing that. Okay. And I think that was really important. So communication. Yeah, yeah. And I wouldn't have done that without him, you mm. know, forcing me to do it. So, mm-hmm. you know, you got to know your strengths and your weaknesses. And I think that's an area where, you know, I kind of, I don't like to talk about that stuff because if I don't exactly hit the goal, 
Right. Then I don't want to have to. You want to be on the record as right, committing to right, it. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. But but we did it, and we did it frequently. And then I think the other way you do it, which is probably a, a more effective way, it's still communication, but if you build a good quality management system, and I'm a really big believer in quality management systems, you know, ISO. Mm-hmm. And I, leave, I believe in it in a holistic approach, not just on a pr- process or a procedure in particular, but as an organizational thing. Mm-hmm. You set policies and you develop departments and you develop positions and you, and you train. You, you develop a, an effective role for people to have a, a leadership culture, you know, and, and say, what am I responsible for? What authority do I have to make decisions on? And once you're responsible for decisions, you start asking how do we change things? Because you're responsible. How do I make for, mine better? Right, yeah. right. Yeah. And then that kind of works its way through the hierarchy, and that's really a, a more effective way to do it because you're making everybody who in the in the organization part of the change. Because yeah. if you're changing who you are or your product, you know that requires everybody. Mm-hmm. And and we did that really well, and I still think we do that really well. I mean, it does. We'll bring you know uh, people from any aspect of the business into a conversation about the product or about the customer experience or about a vendor experience, all of which I screw up, not saying they're perfect, sure, but sure. you know, we, we, they're, everybody's engaged. In it. And I think that's really a part of it is making sure people understand what their authority is and having a process and procedure in place so they can understand how to exercise it and training it and doing that over and over. Mm-hmm. And then giving input as they're doing it, here's how I think I can make my area better. Well, that's a continuous yeah. improvement, right? Yeah, I love that. So you've integrated this and pushed it right down into every aspect of the business. And to me, that's great. If the business has integrity, you know, everything's lined up. It's all pulling in the same direction. I know it's not perfect. I'm sure there are hiccups at times because we're all human beings and that, that's part of being a human. Or because I'm here. One of the other. <laughs> a little of both, right? <laughs> yeah, right. But I think that's, that's great that it's because, you know, often I will talk to someone, I shouldn't say often, but sometimes I'll talk to an owner. They're excited about change. They're excited about continuous improvement. But you talk to the guy in the line and it's like, ah, it's a different world. And what I'm seeing when we walked in the facility, what I'm hearing and, and you're describing is, this concept applied throughout the business in a way that's meaningful. And I like that. I think that's uh, powerful. So, Well, when I said earlier about continuous improvement, you know, that culture, that's what it is, right? Yeah. And when you have complete engagement and you do that through a quality management system, you do it really well. Yeah. Then you get feedback loops, right? Sure. And then you have engagement, you know, and yep. so. That's good. I appreciate you sharing that. Josh, tell me a little bit about the biggest challenge you've had to face as the uh, as the leader president of the business over these last few years. Well, I I would think the the biggest challenge every business probably faces in a manufacturing environment, anyways, is you know generating cash. Right, we're always focused on cash, mm-hmm. so. I'm just going to say that's everybody's biggest problem and then go to a second When you say generating cash, you mean income or cash flow? Just cash dynamics, right? Okay, just cash in general. Okay. Just just, just cash dynamics. Every business is – that's always number one, right? I I bought a business and my accountant, uh, about 20 years older than me, said, Michael, I was a young guy in my 30s at the time. He goes, let me tell you something. There are three things you need to run a business. I'm like, yeah, Tom, what's – I thought I was going to get the cash, cash – and cash. And I was like, and, and he was right. I learned the hard way that Tom knew what he was talking about. It's all about the cash. So anyway, I interrupted. So, no, so cash dynamics yeah. is. Well, I just, I say that because I think every small business, absolutely. we don't have access to capital markets. Yeah. We don't have access to, to complex debt structures. And you're running big projects system. through here. Cash has got to be a painful thing. If you're getting a seven figure project through here, you've got to have the cash available the cash resources available to keep the facility going, to pay your people, material costs. Because I'm sure all your clients don't just pay you up front. They go, hey, who do I make the check out to? Is it do I make that out to you or to Bunting? Who do I – you've got to float that project for – You know, I know you're getting money in, but – No, no, you're, you're 100% right. I mean, look, my average size job is probably $5 million. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really not – Cash dynamics. It's, yeah. it's not extremely difficult. I'm not trying to make more than it is, but I'm just saying, look, if, you, if you're going to focus on anything day in, day out, All right. you know, like one of the things I learned, if I was going to walk out of here and you say, well, what's one thing you learned that other people could get a piece of? You know, 
I learned how to run a 13-week cash flow statement. There you go. And, yeah. you know, it really makes a big difference. And until I had heard of it, I'd never knew it existed, you know, because <laughs> yeah. everybody is looking, you know, at the end of the year going, okay, what did the P&L look like? Well, right. that's a lagging indicator. It is. So when you start looking at a 13-week cash flow, you start living in the moment, right? Yep. And so you, you manage it better. And so I just say, look, the, the, there's always cash challenges. That's obviously – That's a constant. It's a constant. Yeah. Everybody has it. So I don't want to make it the focal point because that would be mundane and normal. But I would say one thing that really helped me in life was learning how to operate a 13-week cash flow statement. Okay. And uh, I, I just think it gives you a lot of current information. And anybody who has cash stuff ought to look at that. Mm-hmm. Um trying to think what other challenges I had. I, I guess, you know, probably a lot of it was transitional between different leadership styles between my dad and I. Okay. And, uh, you know, he was probably a lot more effective than me in a lot of respects. And, uh, but one of the big differences between him and I is, is that, you know, I'm a big process procedure type person. And, and he just wasn't, right? You know, and I think I had the advantage of databases most of my career, and he didn't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it makes it a lot easier when you have data structures that are different. And sure. so uh, I can manage through data, and, and he really didn't have that advantage. But okay. um, I think I think some of that was me building out some of that, that infrastructure for myself um, because I was given a lot of opportunities. Some, some of the stuff I had to build on my own, that's probably where the challenges were. Hmm. So. Hmm. Did he have a different management style than you? Was he more a walk the shop floor kind of guy, or absolutely? Yeah, okay. yeah. No, he was. You know, he's he's a very uh, he's a very congenial person, and and you know loves everybody, and you know goes out like you said, walks the shop, knows this goes out. You know, yeah. I'm, and and you know, candidly, you can be very different on a on a sign than you can on a building envelope because they're just so highly engineered. It's a different product, yeah. Right? You yeah. know, I mean, it's. I don't think I have the authority to come in and a lot of times and say, hey, why are we doing it that way? Because, you know, now I have a professional engineer that says it's right. got to meet these performance criteria. Right. A lot more on uh, at stake, too. So if the restroom sign falls off the wall into the floor, that can be an issue. Right. But if a curtain wall comes down, we're talking a whole nother level of pain. Yeah, well, that's it's, – it's, That's catastrophic. It's catastrophic and yeah. you could kill somebody, right? Yeah, and that's absolutely. And that's where you really get into that – Procedure, process, quality inspection, and relies sure on a different kind of organization, different kind of infrastructure, different process, and so your strong suit has been help has been setting that up, creating that. Probably, yeah. yeah, that's awesome. What are you most proud of? I mean, we're kind of getting into, and I, I'm not, that, that wasn't a lead on, hey, your process, but what are you most proud of with the business over the last handful of years that you've been running it? Oh boy, that's a here really we go. Hard we're one. going back to the the humility piece that yeah, we started with. I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Hopefully, my dad's proud of me. That would make me proud. There you go. So that yeah. would, if that's it, then we're good. Yeah. You know, and maybe everybody else in my family and the people that work here, if they're all happy, then I'm happy. I'm I'm good. Wow. Well, that's I I uh, I appreciate that, Josh. I'm sure there's a lot more that's uh, that that you're not giving yourself credit for, at least not on a recording. But um, you know, I'm looking at what you've built and the transition from what you're telling me is quite impressive. I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure a lot more than just your dad are proud, but it is nice when our parents think well of us, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's what I, th- I think that's a big motivator, right? You know, yeah. your your parents, your spouse, your kids. Those are the that's yeah. why you, you know. And the people for me, you know, I I I I want the people that work here, you know, uh, to to be proud too of me. You know, I mean, that's you know, some people say they don't care what others think. I'm I'm not overly concerned what people think, but the people I care about them, I want them to right. to respect what I'm doing and sure. So that that matters. Sure. Well, I think it goes back to the, this discussion about you know the, the people working together, people committed to the same thing, helping people. Uh, it's a lot. It's a it's a lot. It's a lot to carry responsibility wise, but it's not one of those things that's material. You can't look at it on a P and L, but it has a big impact on 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 people when they go to work every day to the leader to the to the business. Josh, um, as we're wrapping up to a close here, I'm curious, like, what's your vision for the future? I know this transition has been a big transition. You're doing really big projects, high profile. Um, 
where do you see the business going? Is there is there a clear path for that? Or are you just going to put the pedal to the metal and do what you're doing? Is there a different future? Um, you know, I, I would say this. I have a vision, but there's got to be enough latitude for it to change. Mm. You know, because the world gives you something different every day and, and you have to really be open to it. But uh, I think if I, for me personally, um, I have a business plan. We're working towards it. And, uh, you know, my, my goal is to really execute what we do well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'd, I'd like to get to a certain revenue target, a certain margin target, a certain return on cash target, um, and, and the velocity on cash. And those are the things on my vision, oddly. Mm-hmm. But uh, on the product side, you know, I really want to be an integrated products company. I think we're a lot of the way there. I have some things to do. Uh, I want to get better at marketing. Hmm. I want to get better at uh, maybe brand and stuff we're talking about. I don't have any salespeople. And sure. you know, that's when I talk to people a lot of times, they say, well, geez, how can you operate like that? So it gives me a little bit of a sense of maybe that's not the right thing. So, I don't know. Something's working, but yeah. Yeah, I well, yeah. I, mean, it, I mean, you know, it's it's – it's it's managing, but I mean, are there more opportunities though? Right, it's like right. this is working at this level, but could you do more, different, better? Yeah, yeah. and I and I don't know, you know how how I do all those things in life. Sure, so sure. I, I think for me, you know, one of the things I guess back to proud. One thing I am proud of myself about is that I do continue to learn, hmm. and I dedicate myself to it, and I think I've been learning the right things, you know, and and uh, so, but the vision, I I really just want to really solidify ourselves in doing building envelopes, whether it be metal panels or curtain mm-hmm. wall systems or curtain wall systems clad with different components and own a space of not the, uh, there's a middle market for that. That's, that's underserved. And I really want to own that space. And that's where I'm trying to get to. Mm. And I think we're doing a good job on it. You know, there's some competitors out there that Warren Buffett owns a curtain wall company. Okay. You know, and one of his subsidiaries called Benson, you know? Okay. Now they, they own, a, they're doing the new Salesforce tower, right? And that's a probably a $80 million curtain wall package. So, you He's know, probably on the board or something. Yeah, probably, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, Bill Gates. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, but so, you know, I don't, I don't aspire to compete with them candidly, you know, and, and, uh, and I'm too big to compete with a, you know, company that's going to do 3 million in gross revenue. So I'm really trying to, between those two, there's a big gap in the market. So it's really underserved. Okay. And so that's my real goal is to kind of lead in that position in that, in that market. So that's where I really, that's where I really want to be. My guest today has been Josh Bunting. He's the president of Bunting Architectural Metals. Josh, thanks so much for joining me on The Currency. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. Guys, if you haven't already, do me a favor. Check out Josh's company. You can just go to buntingarchitecturalmetals.com. I'll make sure to put a link in the show notes. Check out their work. It's really impressive. It's uh, beautiful work all over the country, high-profile stuff, and uh, I think you'll enjoy learning more about them. If you haven't done so already, do me a favor. Subscribe to this podcast. I talk to folks like Josh Uh, all the time. Once a week, we put a show out like this. If you really enjoy entrepreneurialism, if you care about the story of wealth creation, the story of private business in America, then uh, do me a favor and subscribe. You can find the show anywhere fine podcasts are provided, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, Google, all over the place. Guys, I love you all, and I'll catch you in the next episode.